You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. church. Good morning. How are we doing? Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning, picking back up on uh, our under construction series. It's been over 16 years ago, 16 years since my wife and I first came to this church. At the time, it was called Celebration Fellowship. We came, I remember, on a morning that was incidentally Spring Forward Sunday. Uh, This was, of course, before your phones automatically changed the time for you. Uh, It was before iPhones existed, actually, and uh, we were an hour late to church. We didn't even realize it. We'd actually been invited by the Burkus family, and uh, we came an hour late. I remember I came in. We sat down somewhere kind of back in that area over there, and um, we came in and sat down, and James was already preaching, and I felt like, I I I feel like we've missed something, like... (laughs) This feels really developed right now, what he's talking about. And uh, of course, about midway through the service, we realized we're an hour late. That's why. And we stayed for the second service. And it was a really monumental uh, Sunday for us. We met some people who invited us in at that time to what was called the college group. And uh, we immediately plugged into that group. We made friends, many of whom we are still dear friends with, lifelong friends um, that still attend here, actually. And uh, together, as we moved through those years, uh, first the college group and then various life groups and various Bible studies and some freedom groups along the way, we got to see not only each other, but so many other individuals really mature in the Lord. And it was really amazing. It's, it's, it's amazing to think back on and, and how far the Lord has brought so many people that I've watched sort of grow up in the faith, including myself in that time. But, but during that time, we've also seen a lot of people leave the church as well. And, and you know, some of them left and went to other churches. Some of them stopped going to church altogether. Some of them stopped calling themselves Christians. And it's wild because some of these people were on fire for Jesus. I mean, on fire for Jesus, pursuing Jesus daily, doing all of the things that you would expect a a young, on-fire disciple of the Lord to do. They began serving in various areas and in leadership positions, and some even went on to seminary. And I mean, it was just, they looked like ideal disciples of Christ. And, And then all of a sudden, they walked away, and they don't, even, they don't even identify as Christians anymore. And as a pastor now, and of course as a Christian then even, I can't tell you how many times I've been asked, how did that happen? Like, what went wrong? What, where did things get so off track? How did they go from being leaders and in pursuit of Jesus daily to a full-blown departure away from the faith? How do these things happen? We're going to talk about that this morning. Four weeks ago was the last time we were in 1 John. It's hard to believe it's been that long, but remember we had Denise Schick here for kind of a special Sunday, and then it was Palm Sunday, and then last week was Resurrection Sunday, and just like that, three weeks have flown by. We're four weeks uh, removed from 1 John. But if you recall, four weeks ago, we talked about the things that lure people away from the faith. John, in 1 John 2, verse 15, he said that it's all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, are those things, and so he warns us, do not love the world or the things in the world. That was the central command of that text. Do not love the world or the things in it. They will lure you away from Jesus, and they will lure you into death. 
Do not be deceived. The world is full of empty promises. Don't love it or anything in it. You must reject it. But this morning we come to verses 18 through 25 and and John is going to go a bit further and unveil really the ultimate underlying reason for why people walk away from the faith. And it's not an easy reason. I'm going to just give that to you up front. It's not, this is, a, this is a difficult passage to preach through. It's a difficult passage to really uh, set our minds on because of, of what is being communicated here. I'm going to just give it to you up front. People walk away. It's not because they're lured away from, from Jesus ultimately. It's not because they, they change their minds about Jesus. It's not because they find something better to believe in. It's that ultimately they were never truly born again to begin with. So this morning, my goal is to present to you a very biblical picture from 1 John chapter 2 of what genuine salvation looks like. In other words, there are things that genuine salvation does and does not do. You can evaluate the authenticity of faith based on some measurable characteristics. John gives us a litmus test of sorts, if you want to think of it that way, a picture of what real faith looks like. And so I want to walk us through this passage, talk about these characteristics of salvation, but then here's what I want to do. At the end, I want to come back and I want to just give you some pastoral words of comfort. This is a really difficult passage. This is a really difficult topic. It hurts when people that we love walk away from the Lord that we love and serve. And so I want to teach the text, but then I want to be sensitive to that and try to come back and just give you some some pastoral words of encouragement for those of you who are really walking in this particular uh, topic right now in your lives. So two major qualities of salvation come out of this text. Here's the first one. Genuine faith perseveres until death. Genuine faith perseveres until death. Look at verse 18 and 19. John says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. I I made this... uh, this sort of side trail, rabbit trail, what do you want to call it, first service, so I'm going to do it here as well, because I had it in the notes twice, and then I took it out, um, but last week, if you were with us last week in Resurrection Sunday, uh, you remember my Vanna White moment back at the board, um, where I talked about something called chiasm, a Hebraic literary device, wherein uh, ancient writers could highlight or emphasize certain aspects of what they were writing. Verse 18 here is in chiastic form. If you'll notice, it starts with children, it is the last hour, it ends with, therefore, we know it is the last hour. Those kind of create a sandwich between the two beelines, which is, so now uh, you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. That's the, the B phrases. In other words, he's trying, to, he's trying to emphasize that the Antichrist will come and has already come in plural form. We'll talk about that in a minute. Look at verse 19. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So let's break this thing down. Notice first that John says we're living in the last hour. What does he mean by that? The New Testament presents to us this idea really all throughout the corpus of the New Testament that as you get closer and closer to the second coming of Jesus, more and more people are going to abandon the faith. That's how you know you're getting closer to the end. More more and more people depart from the church and depart from the faith. And it's not just John that talks about this. Paul warns young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. He says, I charge you 
in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, keruxon ton logon, preach the word. That's the command there in the imperative. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why should young Timothy do this? Paul tells him in verse three. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. How do you know that you are living in the last hour? Because people will turn away from Jesus. They will find someone else who will, who will say to them and teach to them from the Bible what they want to hear, not what the truth of God actually says. Now, John is saying here in this letter, that time is now. We are in the last hour. And notice that John talks about Antichrist. And he mentions two kinds. He mentions one that is coming in the future, a singular Antichrist, and many who are presently Antichrists, plural, here already. The future one is coming. That's Satan. That is the, uh, the man of lawlessness is what, what Paul calls him, or, or the false prophet, perhaps, in the book of Revelation. That is a future event, but presently, many of them all already here. This is the Greek term antichristos. It's a word that doesn't mean a false Christ. It means one who is opposed to Christ. So the future antichrist, as I said, is Satan, right? Or, or some satanic figure. And he will come in the future. And, and there's a lot of things the Bible talks about for when he comes, how you'll know he's here. But these present antichrists, plural, John says, are not Satan. They're not demons. These are people who oppose Jesus, now, I want to be very clear about this. This is important for you to understand this little distinction. These are not simply just non-Christians. These are people who are not only non-Christians, they are devoutly opposed to Christ and his church. And what was happening in the ancient days, they were luring some people away from the church with their false teaching. And this was concerning the believers of John's day. It was confusing to them. They were, they were trying to figure out how is it that these people, these antichrists, have the power to convince believers to leave Jesus and walk into error. And John's point is, they're not convincing true believers to deny Jesus because genuine faith doesn't do that. It doesn't deny Jesus. It doesn't walk away. It perseveres until the end. One of the questions that I get a lot is that when someone walks away from the faith, do they lose their salvation, right? Can you lose your salvation? And John's answer, not my answer, John's answer here is they don't lose their salvation. They reveal they never had it to begin with. Listen to what he says, verse 19. For if they had been of us, they would have continued. But they went out that it might be plain that they all are not of us. They didn't lose their salvation. They just never had it to begin with. They weren't lured away from Jesus. They never belonged to Jesus to begin with. And you may think, well, but they prayed the prayer of faith. Clearly they didn't because genuine faith perseveres. Well, but they were in church every Sunday and they served and they read their Bibles. Well, being in church every Sunday doesn't save you. Serving a bunch doesn't save you. Reading your Bible every day doesn't save you. Those are things that can be evidence of salvation. They can be fruit of salvation, but they are not the full determining factor for how you can be certain someone is saved. You know what the full determining factor is you want to know? It's whether or not your faith lasts until your last breath. I like to remind people both in the context of a wedding and in the context of Christianity that the most important day of your faith is not your first day, it's your last. 
Last day is the most important. First day is great. First day is a celebration. First day, you're like, you have no idea this new world that's ahead of you. Everything seems like, wow, so exciting. It's your last day that's the most important. So the Apostle Paul talks about this. He he says in the last years of his life, he he talks about this crown of righteousness that he's going to receive from Jesus himself. And he's convinced. He's like, man, I am, I can't wait, right? I am awaiting that moment when the Lord himself places this crown of righteousness on my head when I die and go to be with him. Do you know why the, the Apostle was convinced he was going to receive that crown of righteousness? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I made it, in other words. I lasted until the end. I, I, he knew he was nearing his death. He knew that he was likely going to be uh, executed by Rome. He knew that it was imminent. And he's like, man, here I am. I, I've, I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. I fought the good fight. I know now for certain that when I die, I will see Jesus and he will put a crown of righteousness on my head. On Friday... I received a call from a uh, church member here who notified me of a former church member um, that was probably not going to make it another day in hospice care. A woman that attended here for many years moved uh, to a different church during COVID because uh, she was quite a ways away from us and found a local church near her. Uh, Many of you know her if you've been around for a long time. Her name was Evie Walker. And uh, Evie went to be with the Lord on Saturday. Um, She'd fought cancer for nearly three years and uh, chemotherapy for two and for the last year some various different alternative treatments and so uh, a church member who's very close with her called me and said would you come and and pray with the family and I said absolutely and so I went out there and and prayed with them and sat and talked with them for a little while and and I was so so struck by something that one of the family members told me they said you know Evie really wanted to make it to Easter that was kind of her goal and she did and um and at, in the last couple of weeks of her life, she wasn't very verbal. Um, I think probably it hurt to talk and just didn't have the energy and was, you know, really on decline. And, and um, Easter Sunday rolled around and they said, I, I could hear her talking in a room. <laughs> and so I, I went in there and, and I said, Evie, I said, who are you talking to? And she said, I'm talking to Jesus. And she said, what is he saying? And he said, he says he loves you so much. That is what lasting faith looks like. When your body is riddled with cancer and you can't even hardly speak and all you want to do is spend your time speaking to Jesus. That's a woman who when she died, when she breathed her last breath at 2.14 a.m. on Saturday, Saturday morning, I am confident. I'm not confident of much, but I'm confident that the Lord Jesus put a crown of righteousness on her head. That is faith that lasts until the end. Listen to me, if you are a Christian, you did not earn your salvation. If you're a believer in Christ, you are so because of nothing that you've done. And don't take my word for it. Listen to the words of Jesus himself. John chapter six, verse 37 and 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Let me read that again. That's good. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Consider what Jesus is saying here. What does he say the will of God the Father is for the Son? 
that everyone the Father sends to the Son will be saved, that not a single one of them will be lost, that not a single person will walk away from him. Jesus will accomplish the Father's purpose. He will do it. The only reason you are a Christian, that you can call yourself a Christian, is because the Father has given you to the Son, and the Son will not fail to keep you with him. And you may think, well, no, but I mean, I remember I chose Jesus. I, there's a moment in my past that I can remember where I decided to follow him. I made the choice in my mind to choose Jesus. Jesus goes on in John 15, verse 16 and 17. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Listen to me, it feels like you chose him. It feels like that, but you didn't. He chose you first, and he appointed you to bear fruit of righteousness that would remain, minnow, the Greek term, to abide or remain. And Jesus goes on, he essentially says, or John, I'm sorry, goes on and essentially says the same thing in verse 20. He says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. He's saying that Jesus chose you, he anointed you, and the result of this choosing is that you will have all knowledge, that you will not believe a lie because no lie is of the truth. Genuine faith perseveres, it lasts, it's long lasting. You cannot read these verses and come away with the idea that you can lose your salvation. Hear me when I say this, okay? When we say, that a person can lose their salvation. Here's what we're saying. This is what's going on theologically. We are saying that the divine son of God, Christ, has failed in obedience to do the will of the Father. You prepared to make that claim? The will of the Father is to give those whom he chooses to Christ and that Christ should lose none of them. So whenever you say you can lose your salvation, you're saying that Christ has failed in obedience and that the Father's will has failed to come to pass. But let me tell you, dear people of God, Christ has not failed, nor has the Father's purpose. People do not lose their salvation, their departure reveals they never had it, because genuine faith perseveres until death. Not only that, but second, genuine faith proclaims the essentials. It proclaims the essentials. Verse 22, it says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. He goes on in verse 23, he says, no one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. One of the terms that you'll hear me say frequently, and if you've been around, you heard Dr. Reeve say it a ton as well, is the essentials, or the essentials of the faith. What do I mean by that? I mean those essential theological doctrines or beliefs that you must believe in order to be a Christian. They're the non-negotiables of the faith. They're the essentials to genuine salvation. So, for example, things like, you know, what you think about the tribulation or whether or not the gift of tongues is still active, those are non-essentials. Those are theological doctrines. They, they're important to know and have an informed opinion about, but they're not, you and I can, can agree to disagree on whether Jesus comes back prior to or after the tribulation and we'll be fine. We can just agree to disagree. I'm not gonna lose any sleep over that whatsoever. There are certain doctrines over which we cannot disagree. So for example, we cannot disagree on the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. That's a non-essential. 
If there is no virgin birth, Christ is not sinless and he is not a savior and we're all still under wrath. That's an essential of the Christian faith. We cannot disagree on the gospel. Paul says in Galatians 1.8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be anathema, accursed. By the way, as a side note, the gospel according to Joseph Smith is claimed to have come literally from an angel. I'm just saying, Galatians 1.8, bit prophetic. Do with that what you will. There are certain things that we cannot disagree on. Here, according to John, we cannot disagree on the relationship between the Father and the Son. And by extension, I would also include the Holy Spirit in that as well. In other words, we cannot disagree on the Trinitarian nature of God. We can't disagree on this. Now, let me qualify what I mean by that, the Trinity. Boy, if there has ever been a topic more difficult to understand, I would love to know what it is, the Trinity. So our historical faith is built upon a confession. If you think about the Christian faith beginning, you know, technically obviously from the beginning, but really established confessionally at the resurrection of Jesus, it takes a couple of hundred years before we begin ironing out these theological, like what did this all really mean? And there is a particular confession in our faith that is essential with regard to what we think about God, and it describes this trinity. It says, we believe in one God who exists eternally in three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So one God, but three persons. This is a doctrine that is described in the Bible, although the word Trinity is never found in the scripture, it is described in the Bible. Um, It is testified to by the earliest accounts of the early church, and it is formalized, as I said, into a confession and what was called the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed. So if you've ever heard of the Nicene Creed, it it was sort of modified about 50 years later in 381 AD at the, uh, Niceno, the, the Council of Constantinople is what we refer to it as. The Bible is clear about this, that God is one, but that he exists eternally as three persons. So for example, uh, Wednesday night, we talked in my binge reading the Bible class, which is by the way now on hold for a few months. We've got another class that's gonna begin in here uh, in the coming weeks. I'll say more about that as we get closer. So don't show up Wednesday, I won't be here. Uh, but we talked this past Wednesday, they're all on YouTube if you wanna catch up on 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, where Peter says that the elect of God, those whom the Father has given the Son, that this whole process of salvation happens, check this out, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ the Son. So salvation takes place with the foreknowledge of God the Father but it's worked out in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of obedience to the Son of God. So it's a work of salvation is in concert within the divine persons of the Trinity, of the Godhead. Now this doctrine is not controversial historically. It's pretty cut and dry. It's not even that controversial statistically speaking. Lifeway Research uh, recently, within the last three years, conducted a survey with adult Americans, very broad subject, um, and 72%, listen to this, agree that there is one true God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 72%, that's three out of four Americans. That's really good percentages. That's remarkably good. That's shockingly, almost unbelievably good. That is until you begin further inquiry. That same survey 
59% agreed that the Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being. So that's heresy. Um, That's a denial of the Trinity. The Bible is very clear. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is described as a he, not an it. Uh, Beyond that, he's referred to literally as God. In Acts chapter 5, in that super awkward church service where Ananias and Sapphira literally die and they just quit singing and go dig their graves um, because they lied about the land that they sold and gave the money to the church and said they gave it all, but they kept some. Um, that's, a, that's a sermon on tithing somewhere, probably. Uh, I'm kidding, I wouldn't do that. Uh, but, but if you remember in that passage, after Ananias lies, Peter says in Acts 5, verse 3, he says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he goes on in verse 4, and he says, you have not lied to man, but to God. So catch the connection there. You lied to the Holy Spirit, which means you lied to God, because the Holy Spirit is God. In that same survey, 55% agreed that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Again, this is heretical. This is not, this is an anti-Trinitarian theology. Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is eternal from eternity past. Now, he is incarnated in the flesh, but he isn't created there. He existed prior to the incarnation as well. John says in or I'm sorry, Hebrews 1.8 says, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, the scepter of uprightness, the scepter of your kingdom. Hebrews refers to the Son as God. John chapter one, verse one, in the beginning he was with God and was God. In John chapter five, verse 18, this is what bugs me, is like people will read the Bible and be like, well, I'm just not that convinced that Jesus was really saying that he was God. And I'm like, well, that's what the people trying to crucify him thought. Look at John 5, 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I mean, it's pretty cut and dry, but 52% in that survey went on to say, Jesus is a great teacher, but he wasn't God. Now understand what this means. It means we have a lot of people who are good at Christian words and very bad at Christian belief. In other words, we have a lot of people who agree with Trinity, but then when they are further asked to espouse their beliefs concerning the persons of the Trinity, it actually actually becomes quite clear that they are very anti-Trinitarian in their belief system. They're inconsistent with what they say they believe. What that says to me is that we have a lot of people in churches at least in America, who know the right Christian words but don't really believe the Christian stuff. This is a problem because genuine faith proclaims the essentials and you can't proclaim that which you don't believe and you can't believe that which you don't even understand. How can you love a God that you don't even really know how he has revealed himself? How can you obey a God that you're not even sure what he's commanded? These are really important questions that we ought to be asking ourselves. John goes on in verses 24 and 25. He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you or remains in you, there's that term minnow again, then you too will remain in the son and in the father. And this is the promise that he has made to us eternal life. Genuine faith abides in that which you have heard from the beginning. The essentials, the essentials of the faith. And that's how John began this letter. If you remember all the way back to 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, that which we've seen and we heard and we touched with our hands, these things 
things abide in true believers. They are essential. One of the litmus tests of, 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 of are you a genuine believer is are you willing to confess the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? Because John says if they deny the Son, they do not have the Father. And this, by the way, applies to Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, the Way International, and any other pseudo-Christian cult that denies that Jesus is God. That is, by the way, one of the earmarks of a Christian cult. It begins usually with the denial of the Trinity and a reduction of Christ from God to just sort of this like superman, super prophet, you know, not, total, uh, not a totally normal man, but not quite God either. Hercules, right? The Christian version. That's counterfeit Christianity. It's not real. It's not genuine. And, and this is, folks, where erosion of the faith, I think, really begins, by calling into question these essential doctrines. This is incidentally where deconstruction often leads, if not careful. The whole idea of deconstructing is actually in some ways very healthy. We should be evaluating our practices and our traditions and asking, are these really biblical? Are we doing this for the right reasons? Does the Bible actually teach this? Or are we doing this just because we're Baptist or Methodist or whatever denomination you are? But what happens often in a deconstructing phase is you get through those non-essential things and it's kind of like, what prevents me from going further? Maybe God didn't mean these things. Maybe the Bible's wrong. Maybe there's error in the Bible. Maybe Jesus wasn't really God after all. Maybe he was just a rabbi and he's just a product of first century ancient Near Eastern culture. And if he were born today in 2023, he would have radically different views on sexuality and, and on, on abortion or whatever cultural practices are happening right now that seem in opposition with the Christian faith. Maybe if he were born today, he would just have these very different views and, and we wouldn't have all this confusion. Did God really say those things? Interestingly, those are exactly the words of Satan in the garden in Genesis chapter three, verse one. Did God actually say, you shall not eat any of the tree in the garden? The answer is resoundingly, yes, he did say that. But you have to know what he said in order to know that. And you have to read your Bible to get there. There are just some things that we are not meant to challenge there are, there are certain doctrines of the faith that we're not meant to challenge. You can examine them. You should examine them. You should examine them all the time. But to challenge or outright deny essentials of the faith leads to trouble. It often reveals that perhaps you were never saved to begin with because genuine faith not only perseveres until death, but it also proclaims the essentials of the faith along the way. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, I want to close our time here with some pastoral words to you because of the delicate nature of this particular topic. Many of you have family members, children, spouses, parents, close friends in your life that at some point have walked away from the faith, and it is devastating. It is painful. It is confusing. It creates all sorts of heartache. And so I want to leave you with just four th closing thoughts, pastoral thoughts that will hopefully leave you with some measure of comfort as you leave this place today. Here's the first thing I wanna encourage you to do. Don't give up, don't give up. Remember that we said that genuine faith perseveres until death. Well, I would also say it's true that genuine faithlessness perseveres until death. In other words, what I mean by that is that in the same way you won't truly know how genuine your faith is until you are at least close to death, it's also true that you won't truly know how unsaved a person is until they get close to death as well. Because I've seen it so many times that a person gets near the end of their life, they have some traumatic experience, or maybe it's just bad pizza that wakes them up in the middle of the night, 
And they have this crisis of conscience that leads to them repenting and trusting Christ in the twilight years of their life. Long after many of the people who knew them as lost and reprobate have died, they come to faith before they die. Sometimes it takes till the end of the life for that to happen. Sometimes it takes way late in life for that to happen. Uh, I think of one of the virtual patriarchs of this church, a man named Chuck Youngman, who didn't come to faith until he was in his late 50s. And just by show of hands, who's been impacted by Chuck Youngman? I mean, take a look, take a look around. The man was tremendously impactful. He looked like someone in an, into his late 50s that you would, by all counts, just count as lost. Like, he's a lost cause. We stopped praying for him 20 years ago, right? And the Lord redeemed him. Beyond that, sometimes there are children raised in the church that move into seasons of rebellion only to return later in life. And, and the question is, well, does that mean that they were unsaved? Not necessarily. Christians make messes. Christians are messy. And, and beyond that, we're always under attack. We're always under attack. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He goes on and says in verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Why does Paul say to take up the whole armor of God? So that you can stand firm in the faith. But you don't always take up the whole armor of God, do you? Sometimes you have half the armor on. Sometimes all you have is a helmet, right? And you don't stand firm. And you have moments in your life where if you were being looked at under a microscope, everyone in this room might go, I'm not really so sure that person's saved. And it's not necessarily true. It's just that you're in a season of your life that's messy, that you made mistakes, that you need to repent, but, but it doesn't mean that you've fallen away. You still have that word written on your heart. And if you truly belong to the Father, the Son is gonna keep you. He's going to smack you around a little bit from time to time, but he's going to keep you. Again, only time reveals the authenticity of someone's faith. I, let me just say this. I think you're going to be surprised at who you find in heaven. I think you're going to be shocked. There are going to be people who right now look like ideal Christians. And in the end, you're going to find out that they weren't. And you're going to get to heaven and you're going to be like, how did, how did they not end up here? What happened? Yeah, and then consequently, there are people who look absolutely hellbound right now, and they're going to end up repenting at some point in their life, unbeknownst to you, and you're going to end up in heaven, and you're going to bump into them and be like, I think there was a mistake. <laughs> how, how did that person make it in, right? It's true. You really don't know how in or out someone else is. There was a time in my life, high school and into early adulthood, I completely rejected Jesus. I wanted nothing to do with the church. And there were people that I know then who were Christians, some of whom attend this church still, who did not likely see me as fertile ground for the gospel. <laughs> and now by God's grace, I'm not only a Christian, I'm a pastor, which I sometimes think was punishment for my debaucherous life, if I'm being honest. <laughs> sometimes the people you love will question things, they will leave the church, they will fall into some other religious or philosophical tradition, and sometimes they stay there but sometimes they don't. Sometimes they repent and they're restored. You don't really know. So in the meantime, don't give up. In the words of the great Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over. So continue to pray for them, love them, share Jesus with them, be present with them because no one is ever truly out of reach until they die. 
That's the first thing. Here's the second one. This is real important. Stop the blame game. Stop the blame game. When people that you love walk away from Jesus, it's so easy to start figuring out all the ways it was your fault. You know, I should have talked to them about Jesus more. I should have talked to them about Jesus less. I should have encouraged them to read their Bible more. I shouldn't have forced them to read their Bible at all. I should have taken them to church more. Should have taken them to church less. I mean, if you look hard enough, you can find any number of reasons for why it was your fault. Listen to me. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Maybe you said some things or did some things that were hurtful to them. You should repent of that. Ask for forgiveness for those things. But listen to me. Being hurtful doesn't cause people to walk away from Jesus. Just like being nice doesn't cause them to fall in love with him. You don't nice people into heaven. Consequently, you don't hurt people into hell either. God the Father, remember, delivers to his son his people, and it is his will that the son should lose none of them. So stop playing the blame game. You are not God. You don't cause salvation. You certainly don't end it either. Amen? Third, share your grief. Share your grief. It hurts when people walk away. Don't stuff that in. Don't like try to muscle up your theology and like, well, this is just the will of God and go on like it doesn't hurt. It hurts. Talk about it. Share it with other people. If possible, ideally, share it with other people who have had the same experiences you have, who can empathize with you, who can mourn with you, who can provide hope for you regardless of the outcome. I want to make you aware, parents particularly of wayward children, that there is a table in the foyer this morning with couples here who have gone through a process of grief and, and recovery from a wayward child that want to meet you, that want to connect with you and be a safe place for you to begin to process that. If there's any grief in your life that you haven't shared, they want to be a safe place for you to do that. And so it would really encourage you after this, in the foyer, find that table. You'll, it'll, it's called uh, prodigal, prodigal children, prodigal child, prodigal what? Parents, parents. prodigal parents. Uh, it is written by Doug Weiss. Uh, it's a great book. It's a great group. They want to connect with you in the foyer. So don't give up. Stop the blame game. Share your grief. Last, but most certainly not least, press into Jesus. Press into Jesus. He's a good Savior. He's a good God. And he draws near to those who are brokenhearted. And listen to me. He will accomplish his Father's purpose. You will be, the moment you leave this room, you will be tempted to put your eyes on any number of a thousand things out there. The moment you step foot out of this room, probably not even, bef probably before that, a battle will begin, it's probably already going on, for your attention. And there is nothing that is more worthy of your attention than Jesus Christ. So especially for those of you who are, are wrestling with this topic right now and walking through it, it's so important for you to take your eyes off the problem and put your eyes onto the Lord Jesus himself. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for a difficult, but not only challenging, but somehow encouraging passage as well. Because while it is so difficult when people we love walk away from our Lord that we love and serve, 
there is a tremendous measure of comfort knowing that, Father, we have no real part in this other than to, to love, to share Jesus, to share truth, to worship you, to pursue you, to keep our eyes on you. Help us to trust you in places where we have not trusted you. Help us to depend upon you fully rather than ourselves. Help us to reject the lies that the enemy wants us to believe concerning our salvation, concerning other people's salvation, and help us fill our minds with the truth of your word. All whom you give to the Son, the Son will not lose. Oh, how we love you, and we thank you for salvation. We pray these things in the powerful name of the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you all. We'll see you next time.